This episode is brought to you by Black Magic Design. The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve 8 from Black Magic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve 8 is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? This is The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and welcome to part three of the Canadian Cinema Editor's Sound Panel. And this one's actually being released on Christmas Eve, or... Or midway through Hanukkah. Oh, yes. so, I don't know where Kwanzaa falls, I'm sorry. We're going to let you enjoy this part of the panel. And afterwards, Lauren and I will just chat about uh, our favorite holiday films. Throughout this podcast, you're probably going to hear a little bell every so often. That's actually Buster, who has a Santa hat with a bell on it that he likes to chew on. And carry around the room, as you can hear. So if you hear that in the background, please ignore it. Uh, we've chased him down many times, but he's quite fast. Oh, and it's Christmas. And it's Christmas, so we thought, or it's Christmas Eve, and we thought, well, might as well have it. Please enjoy part three of the Canadian Cinema Editors panel. <clears throat> A little bit of an elephant in the room when we have picture editors and sound editors in the same room, but <clears throat> I might as well cut to the chase then. Um, let's talk about temp love if we can. Um, Jane sent me a very pointed email yesterday saying, I want to talk about temp love. Let's go, Jane. Let's go, Jane. <laughs> well, I think I may be speaking on behalf of others. Yes, you are. Just me. But um, for me, it's, I really like cutting sound effects. And it kind of breaks my heart to, um, I mean, I know it's me that's, I'm, I'm, I'm worrying about me as opposed to the film and the director, but it seems kind of sad when I work hard cutting sound effects and they just want what they put in during the picture edit. edit. And it's not that I don't think the picture edit um, was made better by having a sound effect there, but I just wish that they didn't think, well, we could be equally creative using sound. <laughs> so, so it's really just a matter of if you hire people because they're creative, why not let them to be creative? Why not let them be creative? Like, why not let them um, kind of uh, expand their their mind to solving a, a solving a problem or creating an ambience or creating a character? You know, a, a, not just a person character, but a character in the room or a you know a, a car or something like that. Um, but just why not take advantage of that? It just seems a shame. And I think one of the situations that's come up is that. Because the technology allows assistant picture editors and sound and picture editors to do the sound work, and because it's expected for screenings for producers and directors, and especially for the wider circle of producers and direct producers, then um, rather than um, the picture department pushing back saying, "I don't have time to do this," can't you just bring someone in for two days to just sort of go through this and you know, add some extra sound, they just say yes. So um, 
I'm asking you, don't, don't uh, like push back, ask for more. And it's not that I want the two days of work because I actually don't really want the two days of work, but I sure would like the chance later on to, to be given a full range of exploring certain types of sound and not cut off right at, right at the first bit. That's my speech. <laughs> Anyone else? I can say, and in terms of what you're saying too, it's, I've been in a couple of mixes now where um, the directors and everyone is just so in love with their, their tracks and their cutting room. And the, the schedules are so compressed these days that you find yourself, don't you find yourself having to prepare like two different tracks? Like one, cleaning up the stuff that's already in the picture edit, edit because there's no fades or there's whatever, or it's clunky, just making smoothing that out. And then you have to be prepared to either go with what they have or, well, where's the new thing? I want to hear what, you, what else you have. So you've got to prep, don't you find that you have to prep like two different cuts, which schedules don't allow for anymore. Like, not that they did in the first place really, but it's less and less time for more and more work just because everyone's so in love with what they have in the temp mix. Even if it's a repeated, like a looped sound effect that just goes on and on and on. It's like, nope, we love it. And you're, you know, you're just sitting there embarrassed by it. Like, okay. <laughs> okay. Is this still prevalent? Is it still happening? I mean, because I think that this was something that happened, has happened historically quite a bit. And is it still happening, do you think? The last two mixes I was in, yep. they insisted on having the OMF trucks. Insisted. There was yep. no getting around it. It was like, nope. So all the sound design work that went in, I mean, the sound designer was just pulling his hair out. I mean, it was, and it was really disheartening and it was really depressing for them because they couldn't be creative. And they would say, well, what, just listen to this, try this. No. No, we want what we heard for the last six months is, is what the response was. And it's just, it's just disheartening, uh, disheartening because why bother having that person put that creative work into it? Right. Yeah, I, th I think it all, everything we've been talking about so far almost ties into this in terms of schedules and availability and time. I mean, you're talking about a picture edit that goes on for, you know, six, seven, eight months. And then a sound edit, which may go on for six weeks, in which case the director is not even necessarily present through most of it. So uh, what Steve was saying, you know, the mix room often turns into the edit room. And it does, unfortunately, because no one's, no one's heard anything before that point because either they were unavailable or they've, they've locked their picture and they, you know, they're exhausted and they want to take a two-week holiday while sound edit's going on or, or whatever. Um, so unfortunately, the, the mix stage often does become the edit stage, and, and you can take any, almost any, the reality of it is, as much as we've been talking about the ideal working situations in a, um, <clears throat> you know, this uh, paradise of, of sound editing, um, that it rarely ever happens, and more often than not, I mean, I just finished a project where um, even though the, uh, the director and, and editor were in LA, I was temp mixing, you know, just out of my own little edit system, I was temp mixing every reel of the movie for them and FTPing it some so they could listen to the new thing, the things that I was doing differently and they were listening to things, signing off on them. We like this, we don't like that. Getting it to a point where they were comfortable with everything. When they came to Toronto for the final mix, I spent a week with them in my editing room going through every reel, getting them to sign off on everything, much the way Steve described it, in a perfect world you would do. What happened next was we went into the mixing theater and then they wanted to rewrite the book all of a sudden. Suddenly they're hearing it on the big screen. It's like, well, that didn't sound like it did in my editing system. No, it didn't. We've, we've been going through this for a month and a half. We've been changing everything. We've been working on it. But it's that temp love where it finally comes down to committing themselves to a final track and it's not what they're used to hearing. And, and other than the situation we've described and participating from an early stage and being involved in that temp creation, 
which budgets for the most part will not allow us to do. Uh, I don't know how we get around it um, other than, um, you know, occasionally, you, you know, often you, you do work with directors or, or editors who are open to hearing other things and, and often do, do like the work you've done and are encouraged about it. But, but as everyone's been talking about lately, I think more often we're seeing the fact that people have just fallen in love with what they've been hearing for a long period of time. And, and I don't know if we'll, based on the, the budgets that most um, films have to work with these days, I, I don't know if that's something we'll ever really be able to get around. That's, that's very interesting because it seems to be shades of gray when it comes to sound design. I mean, you could use, you know, what the picture editor did. You could use something original. You could essentially license something. Um, what we have to deal with is definitely black and white. Um, you cannot go to the mix with your temp track. You can't go with your, you know, your pop, top 40 hit. That has to be dealt with right off the bat. And, um, you know, temp love, we could talk about it forever, you know, how directors fall in love with their music. You can only imagine when you cut your scene to, you know, your favorite Radiohead song, it's just not going to feel the same when you have an independent band. Um, but I think, you know, if there's anyone on the development stage, the telefilm stage, I've seen just in this last week two scripts that lean heavily on, um, you know, large-scale songs that are written into the film. One film I'm working on, they've got Pearl Jam's Better Man is like the whole end of the film, and it, it sort of leans on all the lyrics. I mean, we're never going to get that. So, Isn't that a producer problem? It's a telephone problem. I think it's a it, it's a writing problem. I think you know these these films are not realistic. Um, you know, if you, it, it becomes a writer, like go back and make your character work a different way because this is just not realistic. Um, it, it's a it's a perception problem. People think because we'll deal with it after post, even you know, um, we're the last thought, and uh, a lot of times they they just sort of think we're going to be the the hero and and pull a, a license out of our bud because I think there's the disillusion of everybody. Every director thinks their film is super important. So, you know, of course we'll be able to get the Radiohead track because, you know, they when, when they see the film and they get the synopsis and the poster, it's going to be like, Tom York's going to want to be my best friend, you know. But that is hardly ever the case. And, uh, you know, listen to your music supervisor. There are shows. Radiohead happens to be an example of something I was able to license along with a Lou Reed song for a film called Bang Bang Club that was all about, you know, apartheid and, and the journalists trying to get the word out about the situations in South Africa. Well, that resonated with them. But I'm able to identify that at the script stage. Again, important to get the music supervisor on early and um, because it is black and white, you cannot mix a song that is not licensed or at least have a deal memo in hand. Um, a good post super is going to be on my ass all the time to make sure things are pre-cleared and that nothing's going into the mix or no, you know, we're not even sending wave files to the mix unless it's um, cleared and ready to go. Dave's got a post supervisor on his ass and he's pulling licenses out of That's a lot going on with my I, I didn't I didn't know that aspect of your job and I I didn't really want to know. Um <clears throat> We could, I mean, Dave makes a good point. We could go on about this all night long because it's something that uh, us sound editors like to bitch about when we get together. And I, I might have been out of place in, in putting it on the agenda. And Michael, we love you. I want you to know that. Unless I've stayed silent. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually, I mean, totally understand this. It's partly about just educating people. You know, I go in and I might start off in the first week putting a song that I know I'm never going to license, but would send that to you and say something like this. Right. And knowing that... Um, 
in the case going back to the film Weirdsville, every song that we used had to be locked before I locked picture. Right. Had to be done because there, what are you going to do? You're going to change your picture if you get a different song, and you're mm -hmm. not going to do that. So, Especially a film like that where you're cutting montage pieces. and you know. Exactly. So, I mean, you, you go in knowing that, and you hire somebody that you know can be good at getting the stuff that you want. And, I mean, we didn't have any, as far as I know, any song that cost more than, like, eight grand. Mm -hmm. But a song like Radiohead is probably, depending on its use, be $50,000. Whereas we got it for eight grand because, or around that, but yeah, if you negotiate. because because the uh, the themes were right, yeah, they were right on, and we can navigate that for you. We can even take you know you've you've tempted in Radiohead for you know a film all about cancer survival. I might be able to identify you know another band that is just as large and brings just as much value to the film that has a sort of some sort of connection to that particular charity. So I mean, we can identify and get creative. It doesn't mean you're always going for the, the the crappy indie version. And if anybody's up on music, there's like no crappy indie music. It's it's fucking phenomenal. Um, it, most independent, all genres is is available. And uh, music supervisor can really do any style, any genre. We can save it. But uh, although you you know that you know, I don't know how the picture editor is informed, but there's a lot of shows we work on, especially the half hour stuff where we're limited to two songs a show. So I don't know if that's something you're conscious of when you're going into it, but we'll get cuts where there's five songs, and we'll just be like. But then there's, that's the, the post-production supervisor's fault for not saying this is the limit. You know? So you have a, a sheet ahead of, before each show, this is what you're supposed to be allowed, and if they don't know, that's, you know, somebody is not talking. But the same problem we're talking about with songs happens with score. I mean, if I put in a John Williams score, in a low-budget Canadian indie film, and it makes it sound fantastic, it's not going to be the same, and people will fall in love with it. So I tend not to do that. Uh, it's an easy thing to do because it can make your, in some respects, make a scene maybe feel better. More than it is. More perhaps. than it is, yeah. yeah. And, so, and we could probably go down that road as well of the idea of when do we engage composers and whatnot, but I don't think it's quite the right forum to do that, but um, it, it's certainly worth at least mentioning that if you have the ability to do so, if there's producers and uh, money people here, engage your composers as early as you possibly can. Getting that stuff into the Avid uh, as early as possible makes all the difference in the world. So basically I'm jumping in because I have to deal with this at the end yep. in that um, <laughs> Really, the lesson here, uh, doing it the right way, is cut your picture to the music you're going to use in the final mix. Because if you start temping in a bunch of tracks that you're not going to get, when you come to the mix and I'm trying to make this song work that's got vocal now in different places, it overlaps production dialogue, you're having a hard time finding um, the right shape for this piece of music in the scenes that have already been cut to another track, it's not going to be satisfying. And we spend a lot of time figuring out why isn't this working? It's because it's a different piece of music. <laughs> uh, so, That's why um, we'll never send MP3s anymore. I think those days are over. We cut you. them to picture and we'll send you the cut, like the eighth cut, and it's probably to an older picture, but at least gives you a general sense of when things dip in and dip out. And so those days are gone, <laughs> I hope. Here, here. Um, I want to make sure that we have enough time to go to the audience for some questions. I'm going to skip around a little bit here. Uh, this is a question that I thought of um, a little bit selfishly because it's it, part of my personal world, but 
And I know that um, Mr. Foster is not going to be able to answer this question in the direction that I'm looking at here, but where are we working nowadays? Um, technology has changed such that we're no longer tied to cutting rooms, per se. Um, so how has technology pushed us in, in that direction in terms of our physical working environment? And what has changed in that regard from a creative point of view, from a collaborative point of view? Somebody want to take that one? Because I certainly can if you don't want to. Technology has allowed me to work at home in my pajamas all the time. No, it's great. It's um, it's great. Um, it, it, and because <laughs> no, it's just sitting here thinking about my pajamas. Visual imagery, Joe. Visual imagery. Sorry. Um, but I'm I'm a night person, and I'm not an, an office type person. So the fact that I can be at home, and after the business day is done, I can just sit there at home and work till three, four in the morning, which is what I normally do, is great. Um, and I just did I just did a Skype session for ADR um, with London while sitting at home in my pajamas, like at four in the morning, like last week. So the fact that I don't have to drive somewhere, go to an office, sit in, sit in a in a studio or whatever, to make that happen is incredible these days. And I find that um, although technology allows that, it's great in that sense, but I do find that not having that collaboration with people that you're working next to in an office, there's a lot of communication that gets lost in miscommunication, or you're sending emails or iChats back and forth when if they were in the next room, you could just be like, hey, what about this, what about this, rather than who's doing that? Oh, I thought you were doing that. Well, are you doing that or am I doing that? Or are we both doing it? Well, who's doing it? And that's what I find just on iChat, it's like, well, I'm doing this. Oh, well, I think so-and-so's on it. Well, are they or aren't they? Which, right. that kind of, you know. Um, whether, you're, whether you have a studio, a physical studio location somewhere where you can bring clients to, you probably also have a studio at home as well that you can work on. It's pretty, pretty standard. And you personally, Mark, I mean, because you're, <clears throat> you're coming from an owner-operator point of view, and Jane, by the way, I'm coming to you next. Um, you're coming from an owner-operator point of view, would you prefer to work at home? I mean, if that's given one way or another, or I prefer you... not to work at all. Actually, I would <laughs> rather should have seen that coming. Should have seen that coming. Uh, it's it, it's it's there are pluses and minuses in both scenarios. I mean, the great you know pluses is that um, I too can work in Jill's pajamas when I'm at home. You know, <laughs> you didn't notice that they're missing, did you? <laughs> the, 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 the very much what Jill was saying is that you can work at home in the comfort of your house, and and you can you can set your own hours. You can um, you know you. Can get up and have breakfast, sit down at 10.30 and, you know, just work away and, until 6 o'clock at night if you want to and you're not under anybody's guidance. You can, you can do your own thing, which is why I think a lot of people get into, well, not the main reason, but I think what attracts a certain character type to, to film and post-production is that the, the rules of the regular world don't necessarily apply um, in, in the film world. Um, but yeah, as Steve was saying, as an owner-operator, yeah, there, there are pluses and minuses. You, you still need to have a studio. I mean, if you're going to, um, if you're going to you know, be at the forefront of, of a crew um, or a supervisor or take a lead role um, on a television series or, or a feature film, you really do need to have a studio where you can bring clients, sit them down, show them things in a 5-1 environment, give them a proper idea of what they're getting. But the preparatory work that goes into creating those tracks can really be done at any location. I mean, a, a home facility, um, portable systems um, are, are very common. Um, there are pluses and minuses uh, to both scenarios. Jane, what do you think? Um, I agree there's pluses and minuses to both scenarios. And um, 
I don't work at home all that often anymore. I'll, um, my preference is to work really early in the morning, so I'm probably just picking up where Jill's going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then I feel like I'm fresher and everything. But, um, and I like to work at home because it's it's you're undisturbed and uh, you can sort of get totally into it yourself. But I I really um, love working with other people because when I'm when I've worked on a scene for a little while, it's great to be able to ask someone to step in and just have yeah. a quick listen and what's it missing? Like, I think this is really boring or just to, just to get some fresh perspective. And, and then sometimes I'll go in and watch someone else who's cut a scene and I think, well, that's the coolest sound ever. Do you think I could use it for like such and such, whatever? Right. So I find it's, um, I kind of feel like I get stuck on my own. I prefer to have some input and kind of creative sharing. Yeah, creative collaboration is a really big thing, and I've you know I've been doing most of my cutting out of my home studio as well, and I think that that's the biggest thing that I miss, is just that opportunity to bring someone in and say something's not working here. Listen to it and tell me what it is, or what do you think? Uh, I miss that a great deal, you know. And that's technology's not quite there yet. It's very close, but it's not quite there yet where I can just quickly whip off a a copy of a session and FTP it to somebody or, you know, do a, a bounce down or a mix down and send that off to somebody. It's close, but it's not quite there yet. Um, Michael, are you are you bound to a cutting room or do you find yourself floating? Yeah, I'm, I, on a show like The Listener, um, the producers want us to be close by. So I have to, my editing system, I transported it out to Cawthra and the Queensway every day I have to drive that gardener. But it's because they're shooting out there, that's where the studio is. The directors are close by, the producers are close by, and they want to be there. When they want to walk into the door, they, want, they don't want to have to travel. Um, when we're doing a feature, um, it could really be set up anywhere. Normally we end up at a place like Deluxe or at Technicolor being close to uh, the facility, and we've rented a room, and that becomes our room for six months. But I also cut movie trailers for companies in China and in Australia, and uh, that I do at home. Right. They they just send me a, a QuickTime file, and uh, I can sit. I have a system at home, and I can just sit there and work away, and uh, f uh, email a QuickTime and get my feedback that way. So for me, it's both. Um, I kind of like the fact that I'd be distanced from the producers and the production. If I could be, I like that. I still like to be around other people. I'd rather on the listener being set up at Technicolor rather than right there with people. They're not officially looking over your shoulder, but they're kind of unofficially looking over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. so. And I suppose that there is something to be said for uh, life-work separation as well. Yeah, um, it's true. I mean, working at home, if I was to do a feature at home, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't think I would do it ever, in part because you're constantly needing to have people come by, the producer come by, and the last thing I want is to have them come into my place right. and working with me there. I don't mind if I'm by myself. As I say, with the trailers, the clients are all offshore. It makes no difference. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, there are distractions when you're working at home, so I tend to be deadline-driven. Uh, I'm going home tonight and have to upload a trailer for a company that's showcasing it at AFM next Tuesday. So, uh, Mr. Foster, you're building a mix stage at home? Yes. I have a small little thing going on here. 8-track. <laughs> it's coming back. 
Um, maybe I'll make this our last question, then we'll turn it over to the audience. Um, uh, where are things headed? Uh, and I know, Steve, you've got a couple of things that you wanted to talk about, Things, some challenges that you're facing with current technology right now and changing trends. Um, where are things headed? Where do you guys see your roles as headed and, and changing in the near future? Mr. Foster, you? Well, we had uh, just you know, talked about how lousy HD audio is becoming by the day. The broadcasters are kind of messing it up, so that's um, a bit of a divergence. But, uh, um, but I mean, speak to that specifically because I think all of us are led to believe that you know HD with broadcast is the holy, you know, is nirvana. You know, it started out great, and uh, the people that were running the SD um, equipment figured they could make it digital 5.1 and do the same to audio in um, 5.1 that they were doing to the stereo SD signal, which is doing a lot of compression. Um, they're trying to make a lot of the sound kind of be at the same level so that they don't um, get calls from people saying, I have to turn it down for the commercials all the time, which is, you know, you don't want to do that for sure. But the reason you do is because a, a dramatic program has dynamic range. And so you can't have a dramatic program sounding as loud as a commercial for 43 minutes or 22 minutes or whatever like the show may be. Um, so what's happened in broadcast audio is they are trying to lower the level of commercials, and this has been passed by Congress in the states, signed by the president. The CALM Act is trying to reduce the level of commercials, which is okay. But in the same breath, they're trying to elevate the level of um, the, the filler for commercials, which is what we do. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way. Um, so uh, they're trying to raise the average level of dialogue. Um, it's called dial normalization or dial norm. Um, up three decibels, a little bit tech technical, but in fact what that does do is it just lowers the dynamic range of the program. So now the dialogue is all going to be louder. So you want that gunshot to be bigger, you want the music to play louder to help the emotion of a scene, and you're not able to get there because you're already kind of at the ceiling. So that's frustrating, and uh, that's kind of what we're fighting as a facility, as a group of mixers. We're trying to um, you know, understand how this is going to work and try to get the best out of it, knowing that it still is, is going to happen. And it has happened in the States. The CBC has mandated it as well for this new uh, specification for level. And what they're also doing is they are um, trying to strap on, um, you know, again, gain normalization. It's called automatic gain control, so that sounds that are quiet are louder, sounds that are loud are quieter which um, is a real drag when you're trying to create uh, emotion with sound. So it's frustrating. Um, actually, I'm going to just diverge for a sec because Sidney Lumet's book on making movies is an interesting book to read. Uh, he has a chapter, and of course it's near the end, on the mix. So I read the whole book. I figured I'd start at the beginning. I would get to the part on the mix, you know, when I got to it over time. So I get to the mix. Finally, I turn the page that night. I can read about the mix. He says, the mix is the most boring process in filmmaking. <laughs> he said, mixers try to make the quiet parts louder and the loud parts quieter. And I went, Jesus, you know, he's right. <laughs> it's interesting. So now I'm just uh, saying that, the, you know, with broadcast now, it's a bit frustrating. And uh, you've probably heard when you're watching a show, City's the Worst. It, uh, Sorry. In that, um, you know, you have a scene, you'll have a line of dialogue. If there's no dialogue for a couple seconds, all of a sudden all these birds, atmospheres start to rise out of nowhere. And you're going, what the hell is going on? And it's these pieces of gear. Uh, one's called um, 
It's by Everts. Uh, I can't remember what it is again. Again, it's like a, a dial normalizer, you know, type of thing, whatever the phrase might be. Intelligain, Intelligain, that's it. Anyway, it's frustrating, so technology is sometimes a plus and sometimes it's a pain. Anyone else? The future of your job? Yeah. Where you might like it to be? Perfect world scenario? You can, you can pipe dream here, it's all right. Well, I'd like to see um, some standardizations in uh, music supervision. I think right now you sort of have a lot of independent cowboys and cowgirls kind of just doing their own thing, um, making deals uh, that are just mind-blowingly, um, you know, insulting to the bands um, and often uh, not... Uh, recognizing that their job is to bring value to the project, not to hoard as much money through the artists that they control. Um, so moving towards more independent music supervisors that have no ties to record labels and publishers and whatnot, um, and, uh, and, and keeping it kind of honest. I think that's important. So I don't know how that's going to be done, but I can see within the next three years, um, some kind of uh, group of music supervisors getting together and creating some kind of standardized way of uh, interacting with these people who sometimes we're just all too foreign to, you know, we're, we're not in this process enough. We feel it'll help the producers and it will help uh, the musicians in turn. That's a good note. I have a um, thing that I would love to happen is people listen more because people seem to wear um, earbuds all the time listening to music like on the subway or on the streetcar or just down the street and I feel like the ability of people to recognize what the world sounds like is dwindling a little. It's a pretty interesting place, huh? The world. I mean, it is. I mean, well, yeah, and, and countries all sound different from each other, yeah. and I don't know that that's as known by people just because the music is common all around the world, so, which is kind of neat, but uh, it also means that you're, you're listening to the music all the time, not listening to the different surroundings. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyone else? Surroundings are boring. Music rocks. <laughs> <laughs> that's why there's so much music in movies, I guess. Yeah, especially mine. <laughs> you kind of think of it, yeah. Those birds out of there. <laughs> uh, uh, nobody, I guess, no one can really say what the what the future is. The one vast difference I've noticed in the last few years is is uh, the individuals, the nature of the an individual's job uh, changing somewhat. Whereas at one time there were there were very defined roles. I mean, so much as um, you had a very distinct music editor, you had a sound effects editor, a dialogue editor, an ADR editor, and so on and so forth. Which which you still have to 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 a large extent. But I'm noticing a trend now more often that you have shows with um, fewer sound editors doing more roles or, or the line between sound editing and mixing blurry where you have sound editors who are starting to mix productions, mixers starting to sound edit productions. Um, people providing the same, doing the dialogue and the sound effects edit on a, on a production rather than two separate jobs. Um, and I'm not saying this is necessarily, you know, a, a bad thing that 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 the lines are blurring. But I think for anybody coming up um, in the next decade um, who is interested in post sound, who who does want to get into that area, I, I think it's important to keep keep your options open and to, and to be open minded and just not limit yourself to one particular thing. To to say, you know, I really want to try to learn all aspects of a certain area because. I mean, you know, <clears throat> 10 years from now, um, that may very well be the situation. I mean, we've looked at our, at our schedules shrink dramatically 
um, from the from where they were 10 years ago, the reality of it may be that, you know, we're, we're going to look at shrinking crews, and I, and I hate to say it, but it just may be the truth. Um, technology has, you know, brought editing and mixing together. Um, so we may see more of that. I, I don't know if we will, but I would just say it's, it's important, I, I think, not to focus on one particular craft. I mean, if there's one thing that you're in love with, then by all means focus on it, but at the same time, keep your options open. Um, uh, to a, a wide range. So that was part three of the panel. Lauren, where have you been for the last couple of weeks? I don't know. You've been sick. I've been really sick. And then just busy catching up on all this stuff. Because something that people may not know or definitely don't know is I like to make a lot of stuff. And Most of Christmas gifts. Um, yeah, pretty much all of my Christmas gifts have had... Um, something that required knitting or, or painting or making of some sort. So I've been trying to catch up on that after finally starting to feel better. So yeah, um, that's where I've been. But I hope everyone's well. I'm sorry I missed you all. Happy holidays. And what's your favorite film? Oh, I don't have one. I have so many. Favorite Christmas film? I probably have. If you looked at um, the movie collection that I brought to our relationship, mm-hmm. It is probably uh, over 50% is either um, holiday films or dance films. Yeah, the majority of my um, the movies that I have DVDs of are teen movies, dance movies, and holiday movies. If it has all three, it's the perfect trifecta, but there's I don't think I've ever found You've that. You've never heard of that? Not no, even no. in the room? Also, if that, well, that was pretty good, but it's, there, it doesn't have any of the things I'm looking for, actually. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have any of the things anyone's looking is, for. Uh, yeah, but, um, yeah, and also, like, a boxing scene is also very good. Yeah, or fast cars. So, wait, what scene, Christmas, what's the best Christmas scene that you've seen in a movie? Well, you've see, seen... I'm not going to talk about it from an editing perspective, though, so okay. I don't want to get judged. There's a bunch of great ones. I love, of course, the escalator scene in Elf. It's fantastic. Also, when he, um, like, just before that part, he uh, decides to um, have the passion fruit sprayed in his mouth, Mm -hmm. and that is quite hilarious, too. Um, I love a lot of scenes in that movie. Um, Of course, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is amazing. I don't know about other people, but I feel that Elf is up there now, for me at least, with A Christmas Story, National Lampoon's Christmas, you know, those ones that you watch each year. Yeah, for sure. But then I have other... um, lesser well-known holiday films that I love, like One Magic Christmas with Mary Steenburgen. What about you? What's your favorite? I'm a fan of It's a Wonderful Life, which interestingly enough, if you watch, has some pretty bad editing. Not to slam the editor or anything. It's it's most good. There's a few scenes where it's a bit rough, so and by the looks of it, they didn't get the coverage that they needed. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting, what I found out was... I believe it's Time Warner who owns it and owns the copyright of it. But at a certain point, one of the clerks at the studio forgot to renew the copyright. Oh my God. And so the copyright came up and anyone who had a film print, uh, you could show it. You didn't. And so all the television channels, so originally the film failed at the theater, mm-hmm. 
but all these television channels needed something cheap to show at Christmas and there was no copyright on this so they started showing it once they had paid their initial license fee that's how it became so popular on television because it was just on every Christmas yeah what happened though is t when Warner bought it Ted Warner or whatever his name is yeah what he did was he went and bought all the copies of the film that he could find up so like the actual film prints then struck a new print with slightly different music and then re got the, like reapplied for copyright mm. and got it so that's how the copyright came back interesting yeah that so but the original if you can find a if copy of it if you can find it. a film print of it but what's interesting is if you watch the, like the DVD we watched there's a frames missing like there's one scene where someone's walking and all of a sudden they shift forward a bit Mm -hmm. And what happened was, because the television channels didn't want to buy new prints, because then they have to pay for it again, anytime the film got damaged or the copy got damaged, they would just do whatever repairs they could. Mm -hmm. So you'll buy DVDs like the one we have, where all of a sudden it's missing frames, or it's, you know, where they've made a repair on it, mm -hmm. and it doesn't look as good as it should. So that also might help make it look badly cut if all of a sudden you lose four frames in a cup. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, I'd like to thank the Canadian Cinemators for letting me record this event. Mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be some video clips coming soon on Art of the Guillotine. Mm -hmm. And in the new year, we're going to launch our new uh, website. Are our, we? Not, not the Art of the Guillotine website, our new cutting room website. Oh. So people can interact with us more. Fantastic. Uh, in the meantime, I'd like to thank the Canadian Cinema Editors, my producer, Lauren Woodcock. Burkell. And I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays! <laughs>